right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Para-X Radio Network. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. This is Jason M. Caldwell, joined again this week with Stephanie Connolly Reisner. How you doing tonight, Stephanie? Good. How are you? Very good. It seems the four weeks have gone by incredibly quickly. Yes. Yes. It's amazing how quickly times uh, things fly by when you're busy, I suppose. Yes. And we both tend to stay busy. So, we got some things to announce. Um, Primarily, September is coming up here Friday. And I wanted to remind everyone to go to the DoMagic.com with a K. And the current DoMagic challenge can be started anytime in September. Andrea told me this week, this previous weekend to be sure to let everyone know that. That you could begin any time in the month of September and it will still count. So, come on out, get some support. Um, Stephanie is participating again. She's more dedicated to it than I've been. I've only done a couple. Uh, how have things been going on your end there with the Do Magic Challenge, Stephanie? Um, well, I... I... I think I've done my research. I'm actually going to uh, be attempting some some yoga with demonic influence. So you know the whole the whole beginner's mind thing. It was very difficult choosing something for Demon that. Yoga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was. I, it's kind of crazy. It's a crazy idea. If anyone wants to read about it, it's like in my blog. But somehow I am. I'm doing a series of. Uh, Poses and uh, sequences, yoga sequences, based on Down, the four elemental demon? demons. Huh? Sorry. Downward demon, <laughs> yeah. <they're>... Downward demon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's fantastic. Sorry, I'm 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 not making light of what you're doing, but I've got to poke fun at it just because it's so so original, actually. It's it's definitely different. So I always have to bring. Bring the, bring the demonic into something, you know? As crazy as it is. That's totally awesome. Um, so, since there aren't yes. any big public events coming up anytime soon for me or Andrea, I uh, wanted to ask you, do you have anything public you want people to be aware of? Um, I have a couple things going on in, in September. Um, on September 8th at uh, 7 o'clock at night, I will be at the Denver Renaissance Hotel, uh, signing some of my my novels during a very large book signing. Um, uh, I think her name is uh, Diana Gabaldon. She wrote the Outlander series. She'll be there, but it's open to the public. And then on uh, September, let's see, September 30th, I believe, I'm going to be at Ye Old Magic Shop in Lakewood, Colorado, uh, doing the main release for my book 13 covens with with a bunch of other authors who also write witchy type fiction so if anyone's local you're more than welcome to come by <clears throat> but that's pretty much it on my end most excellent well you know tonight's guest personally so i felt it fitting that you do his introduction 
tell people mm-hmm. more about him. Okay, great. Um, tonight's guest is William Breyer. Um, he bought his first tarot deck when he was 13, and this sparked a passion for the occult. And he has explored everything from ceremonial magic to chaos magic ever since then. And with the help of shamanic journey work, he has now traveled regularly to the other world for nearly 20 years to meet spirits face to face. Will recently finished a two-year program where he worked through the 72 demons of the Ars Goetia. He is a practicing demonolator and a member of the Temple of Atem. And his book, Demonic Shamanism, A Beginner's Guide, just came out. And welcome to the show, Will. Hi, thank you, Stephanie. Hi, Jason. Hey. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome, Will. So, why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about this this evolution of the occult you've gone through in your life? Because I think it's an interesting combination. <laughs> Well, uh, I didn't really start off with shamanism. Uh, I started off as a very eclectic pagan when I was just a wee thing at the age of 13, but I fell into shamanism when I was about 19. And I was a pagan of the more Norse variety back then, and I would have been very skeptical of working with demons in a shamanic way back then too. In fact, when Loki started showing up in my journeys, I was downright terrified. To me, he was a very devilish figure, thanks to the historic things that I had read. Christians had made him, uh, well, how shall we say, somewhat demonized. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it was hard for me to even start working with someone like that. So ten years later, after I'd gotten a really, really solid uh solid footing in journey work and I thought I knew what I was doing when it came to working with the darker forces a somewhat more uh, trickster like being than even Loki showed up but he wouldn't give me his name and it wasn't in a malicious way it was like he wanted me to put two and two together and it was one of the most enlightening things to have to figure out that this was Lucifer and through building up trust with him I, I figured out that maybe working with demons in a shamanic way was just something I could do naturally. It, he almost, uh, he got me to figure out how to do it without uh, worrying about any of the connotations of the word demon at the time. And I established uh, relationships with other uh, demons shortly after that. It forced me to see this wasn't a one-time thing. And I had to research if other uh, practitioners had done this kind of thing in the past. So really, you did not go seeking them out. They came to you without invitation. Absolutely. They came to me without invitation. I was not working with this kind of pantheon, for lack of a better word, at the time. I was working with Norse deities, and I was really trying to even stay away from the darker Norse deities, if you want to put that sort of mindset on it. Huh. That's that's interesting. Um... I, you know, I've heard a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, there have been some magicians that have come out in recent years, um, including Poke Runyon, who considers uh, Western ceremonial magic, kind of like Western shamanism. Have right. Were you influenced by any of these people, like Poke Runyon or... That, that's what I found out when I started digging into the research because I had to find out if was this something I just stumbled on by myself or did research and scholarship support this and yes, Pokey Runyon came out with that and then there was Stratton Kent who said that also it looked like the Goetia stemmed from an earlier shamanic tradition and more than that I began to find that there were other modern traditions like yourself who were working with demons respectfully and they were finding through their own one-on-one modern relationships, their own one-on-one gnosis, that you could uh, build these kind of relationships as well. While they might not have been directly shamanic in nature, some of the things they were doing were very like journey work. And so I was able to find a common place there as well. Hmm. Okay. And 
I, I mean, I've noticed that there's actually like quite a bit of interest in your book, especially in the demonolatry groups. A lot of people, I've, I've been getting the question a lot, like in past, probably, I don't know, about five or six times in at least the, in the past four months. Um, if someone can mix shamanism with demonolatry, um, so, so there is an interest know. in it. Yeah, yeah, that's well, a good thing is, to know. I mean, there there is an interest, though, there, right? I mean, I I imagine, like, a lot of people, there's been good response. Uh, so, have other people contacted you with, with their experiences? I've definitely had other people come to me and say that they were working uh, at it in this way, that they had found that uh, working in the ceremonial way with the Goisha just wasn't their thing, and they wanted to try a more intuitive uh way of meeting the demonic divine, though they didn't have necessarily that particular word to hang on it. They wanted to meet them on the one-on-one -on -one level, and a lot of them were using the drumming and the rattles, etc., to take them over the hedge, so to speak. The other uh, group that I find has a lot in common uh, with this is also traditional witches who are using many of the same techniques to meet the demonic in the same way. Huh. Okay. You know, I, I find it fascinating because a lot of my training has been in more of a ceremonial kind of magic where you you depending on what style you're using some people use ceremony to bring the demon present where they're at but keep it separate from them i've gotten more comfortable over the years with the idea that the demon can be in the same space as you um, and not necessarily be dangerous if you're working with it correctly if you're careful um Stephanie, in your words, your take on when, when you're working with a, a demon or a daemon, are you going to it, or is it coming, being drawn to you? Um, well, it, it kind of depends. I, I've had both experiences where okay. I've, gone to, I've gone to the demonic for something, or they've come to me for some reason. Usually, I mean, usually there's a purpose, whether it's a warning or, hey, I've got something for you you or hey I want you to do something so I think so yeah that's it's kind of interesting um my question is is I I mean I get like with journeying it's different than an ascension practice but it has the same end goal which is actually speaking with communing with the demonic divine and getting information from them directly right. so to speak face to face, to face. so I'm curious how journeying really differs from ascension practice. It's like a different, it, it, it's almost like maybe a different uh, path to ascension or a new technique. I would, so, say that, I would say that the two techniques are very complementary and can go hand in hand. And yes, they definitely both can teach demonologers and other sorts of practitioners as well to reach the divine on an alternate plane. Realistically, I think the biggest difference is the intentions of those who are going to practice it. Most people in typical journey circles are looking to find some sort of animal helper or what they call a totem, but demonologers want to work with demons, and that will color okay. what they're going to experience when they get wherever they're trying to go. Or it will it will color who they're going to more likely to meet. And we could say that that's a psychological thing, Maybe it is only coloring their perceptions, but it could also be uh, uh, fine-tuning the signal that they're putting out for the being they are wanting, the, the being that they're attracting. It depends what theory of shamanism you're looking at, what theory of journey work you're looking at, the psychological or the spiritual model. So I think that's the one of the biggest differences. It, is that uh, beyond that? I think it's those who attend drumming circles are really focused on personal healing more than anything else. While demonologers and other magical practitioners tend to figure out the potential beyond personal healing and healing in general really quickly. They figure out you can use it for divination, how to uh, get rituals from other deities, and learn more about the universe in general. Just so many other things you can do with it that the drumming circles just in general leave behind. Right. So, 
So do you think this method actually opens a person up to other types of spirits they may not normally work with? And and can it be used maybe to, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like totem spirits here, or, you know, using it to, to gain demonic familiars? Oh, abs- absolutely. Like, you can use journey work to find um, a connection with the spirits of place, what we think of as a land spirit or an animal spirit, which would help you work through uh, a particular issue, perhaps, by picking up on their, um, say, their abilities or their particular things that they're good at. But you might also have a demonic familiar that could be granted to you by a demon to help you through many different types of magic. It could be working through those issues, through divination, through uh, different types of cursing, and even the blessing of people. Right. That demon could be a mentor, or that demonic familiar could be a minor mentor through many different types of magic. Of course, that can happen in just typical shamanism too, but it wouldn't. those people wouldn't be looking for a demonic familiar. They typically want to say, oh, I'm going to have an angel help me. Right. So or, because, you know, oh, yeah, that's I, what I, well, I was going to say. It's kind of like, well, like ascension practice and demonolatry is basically where practitioners seek to not only commune with the demonic or the divine intelligences, but also with the goal of path working, working through different things that they're going through, or gaining wisdom or insight, you know, meaning, you know, maybe they are looking for, you know, rituals or whatever that they can do so they can commune with it. So, I mean, it's it's very, very, very similar. The only difference, like you said, really seems to be, like, maybe finding totem spirits or familiars. I think it comes down to the terminology that people get hung on hung up on too like we look at the word journey and it immediately implies that we are going somewhere and that people always think then that we're going to say the upper or the lower world and people forget then that we can have a journey on say the middle world and be just looking at a different more uh, metaphysical uh, more spiritual version of our own plane like people forget that we don't necessarily have to go on these giant journeys every right. time we're using shamanic experiences. Right. Now, that would be using a shaman-style technique to have more of, say, an astral experience or an out-of-body experience, then. Yeah, it, that could be a way of thinking of it. It's, it's this, all this terminology, depending on how it's defined, you can get really hung up on it. Like people, uh, if they're not using the words astral plane or other world in the same, uh, same definitions when they're talking to one another, may get very confused. That's why I was very careful when I defined it in the book to say, this is what I mean within this context. Right. That, that right. makes sense. Well, and honestly... I think I think we're gonna. I might stir up some hate mail, but I know Jim's gonna be stirring some up in a few weeks. Also, uh, he's broached previously on the show the idea of why some people get hung up over the term shaman uh, or shamanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, if people want to get really hung up, they go, "Oh, well, it's from this particular particular culture in this particular region." But in modern day usage, when we say shamanic practice or shaman. I think we're describing, in more looser terms, a style as opposed to a specific cultural practice. Would you agree? Well, I have to admit that I get somewhat hung up on those terms too. Like, I would never myself oh, do call my—I would never call myself a shaman, for example. Okay. I get very uh, upset with people outside of tribal cultures who claim that because I think that the people in tribal cultures have burdens that they take on when they take up those titles. For example, they're not necessarily pick, they, they don't pick uh, to be a shaman one day. It's usually something that is picked for them. They can be even born into it. and. Okay. It's not like us where we say, hey, I'm just going to go to a workshop one day and I'm going to learn how to do the, pound the drum and, and have a, a totem and then just stop. So I don't think we should ha- play with those titles and then just be able to stop. They have to look after a whole bunch of people and we might just look after four of our friends on every third weekend. Right. Good point. And, and But beyond that, yes, I think when it comes to shamanic practice nowadays, it's in the style of 
uh, one particular gentleman, Michael Harner, who really brought the idea of core shamanism, that there's these practices that are global uh, across shamanic uh, cultures that we all have in common, and that's what we're all talking about. And some people uh, accuse that of being plastic shamanism or white man shamanism, and I have to admit I am very, very white. Uh, I'm very, very white, and I was taught by white people. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm culturally sensitive, but I'm also, I admit that I'm very white as snow. I do, I do want to kind of point out here, though, you know, I mean, I, I get the whole cultural appropriation, but, but I don't think the word shaman really belongs to any particular culture, because technically, the definition of a shaman is someone who is regarded as having access to an influence within the world of, of spirits, and it's it's descriptive of a person who enters a trance-like state during ritual and practices divination and healing. And when you do look at ceremonial magic, most of those rituals are basically glorified divination rituals. If you think about it, most ceremonial magic work is about either scrying or or somehow getting in information, some sort of divination off of the spirit that they're calling on. Aside from, you know, I mean, aside from, you know, the getting stuff end of things, but a lot of those are divination rituals, if you really oh, look at them at their core. You're absolutely correct, Stephanie. And I think <laughs> when uh, those of us that say, you know, when, when we do work be above and beyond that with, say, the Goetic uh, demons or daemons um, we are going above and beyond a lot of the classic material so I think For sure. you're very correct when you're looking at the classic material most of that seems to be to get something to show up and to get very particular information mm -hmm. or and at best maybe make a petition because that spirit has the power to do something in the physical world for you um, but yeah, you're right. It is glorified divination in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, if you, you look know, at, if you look at some of the diagrams in books like the Goetia, and then you look at patterns on the drums in ancient Siberia, er, in, uh, the Siberian shamans in old in older times, and even in modern tribal cultures, you'll see that they're split into fours, that they're uh, that there are split into the four elements and that there are uh, certain spirits set in each quarter. And you can see that there are things that are in common even between those ceremonial practices and what seem to be on the surface uh, labeled as more tribal and, and would perhaps be written off as having nothing in common. Right. Hmm. Well, and not only that, but um, was it was it you I was talking to, Will, when, when we were talking about... Um, the sigils of the Goetia, spirits of the Goetia, because, you know, you and I were in the same Goetia immersion, obviously. Um, so we were talking about how the sigils actually um, look like depictions of, like, the actual demons. Because some people, you know, people have said before, so, I mean, that's kind of shamanistic, isn't it? Like, sigils with, that actually, it's more, I don't know, well, maybe it's more animism, I'm not really sure. But, I, um, I, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, we, we've talked about that before, but I've also come across people saying it on other forums as well, that, that perhaps this uh, sigil of Baal looks like his frog form because he's known to have three heads, or that this particular sigil will look like the writhing back of this particular demon or that demon. And we've said that before, you and I. And I think that could say that they were bringing out uh, uh, something through whatever, perhaps, you know, uh, substance they were ingesting, if they were seeing visions in that way, or perhaps they were just doing some other sort of ascension practice of their own back then and writing down what they saw. I know that I have gotten sigils myself that way for mm -hmm. demons, alternate signal uh, sigils when I was working with the Goetia that were just like that. I thought, oh, it now that I look at it, it's just what I was seeing in their shape. Right. So, so what about, uh, let's, let's talk about ingesting substances for a moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now I want everyone to know that I'm not like, you know, coming out and promoting ingesting substances. 
<clears throat> but by anyway, all means, um, if you can go somewhere where it's legal to do it and you want to do it, yeah, have fun. <laughs> right. So my my question is: Have you ever, will have you ever like you know tried salvia divinorum for example, or um, <laughs> any other nice teachers one. or? Yeah. Well, well uh, marijuana is soon going to be legal in Canada. Our country is just struggling with the legalization of it on a nationwide scale and how it's going to be distributed and will it be distributed like alcohol and that sort of thing. And I admit I was an experimental teenager in college, like most people, and I was picking up on shamanism at that time, so of course I tried those sort of things. And later on, I did try salvia. I want to say only once and that the YouTube videos you see of idiots trying it, it that's a great description. Um, it was brief, and I was able to talk through it, and I don't know how, and I was completely lucid, but I heard um, music at the time, and I was in a completely other state. Like, I, I, I was somewhere else, but I talked to someone else for about 30 seconds, and then it was done. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. I'm like, I don't know how they do it, and I wouldn't recommend it. Let me tell you, I'll throw my two cents in because I tried it back when it was legal here. And whoa, man, it's like going into a completely lucid dream for 10 to 15 minutes and you come back out of that like, who am I? Where am I? Wow. <laughs> so even with my, my practice, I would not, I couldn't in, in, in good, good practice use that substance of course I was using an, an, an extract of it so it was exponentially more powerful than just the natural leaf but yeah I would say that I had no external control for those 10 to 15 minutes and 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 that's that's what I would say it was one of those ones where I think you would have to be in a culture where this substance was used in such a way where you knew how to use it and you could mm -hmm. control it Otherwise, right. I, I well, just you, don't... You have, to, you have to start slow. You have to start with a very minimal amount, especially if you're using an extract. You start with, like, you know, a couple drops under the tongue, and then slowly, mm -hmm. with each successive session, you add more, more to under the tongue, and you just kind of wait until you go. Because most of the time, I, I always describe it as you have to... You use it to help you get past the fade. Because there's, there's a point, and those of you who know, <clears throat> who've done like, like divination, and you've gone into trance-like states, you know that there's that, that point where you're right there about ready to go over, and a lot of times, like sometimes your mind will hold you back. So uh, use of substances yes. like that are to help you get over that hump. to like And so I call it going past the fade. So, and, and it's really good, especially if you're doing some divination. So I, I'm just interested to know if if you will if you'd use that within the context of your shamanic practices and if it had enhanced them. But you, I think you answered that question. Well, yeah, yes, I have had it work with other ones when I was younger with with um, marijuana when I was younger, and that would be to uh, get over the hedge, as I would have described it, which is a more traditional witchcraft term where it's again you're just trying to get over that hump. Since then, I found that there are salves uh, and rubs, uh, oils as well, uh, distillations that can be used of um, far more legal substances to do the same thing that uh, Canadian practitioners make. And I don't have to worry about that kind of thing anymore. So, but yes, it's the same substance. And wild crafting here in Canada among uh, Ontario and BC witches is quite popular. For that sort of thing so yeah ethno shamanism and uh studying shamanism of place is becoming more popular uh among the witches here in canada and in fact there's a, an amazing wild crafter um sarah lawless who makes those kind of products yes okay kind of like you know witches flying ointments and such absolutely Things like that wormwood pictures yeah wormwood uh, uh and uh, mandrake teachers, mandrake and, like focus you, right? And the mugwort, and then for aphrodisiacs, you have the damiana and that sort of things. Yes, absolutely. Huh. Now, 
Now, folks, let me also throw it out there, you know, know what you're using and know how to use it in moderation because there are perfectly legal plants that can give you a whooping if you use too much of them. Exactly. Right. This is not something that I, I would advocate a beginner to use. And I always say to people that are thinking about using ethnogens or any plants, whether it's a plant that even is supposed to be an aphrodisiac, uh, per se, that they should try journeying completely straight and stone cold sober many, many times and learn how to do it that way first. Because if you don't know how to do it that way, you don't know how to do it when you're high on any substance. Yep. Good. I no, I agree with that completely. Most <clears throat> you have to have okay. extreme amounts of control. Mm-hmm. So let me yeah. throw a question. So it's, like, yeah, you. it's always good. Oh, go ahead. Go, sorry, go ahead. Well, it's okay. Well, both of you are are demonolaters, and cat in the chat room throughout the question. Demonolatry is defined as demon worshipping, so this is a religion question mark. Now, I don't think you two would necessarily define it that way, so how would you answer that question? Do you want to go well, first? Technically, step, it is demon worship. It, yeah, right? It's Okay, so the problem people have with demon worship is the worship end of that word, because our culture is so ingrained with the idea of worship as groveling. Um, and worship actually just means to respect something and hold it in high regard. So basically, it's basically working with the demons respectfully is what that word means, demonolatry. So even though it is demon worship, it's basically ho- having high regard for the divine intelligences. Uh, so I think, I think, too, that even pagans that have a good worshipful relationship with another deity in the Norse uh, religion or in the Norse pantheon or the Egyptian pantheon will falter at the idea of having a worshipful relationship with a demon just because of the word demon, because of Christian upbringing and that word being so negative and so bad, and that they sometimes have to get over that idea and realize that many of these entities are old demonized gods that they were once the gods of other religions that have been knocked off their pedestals, so to speak. Good answer. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions in the chat room? I'm actually not in there, so... Oh, that actually is the extent of direct questions from the chat room right now. I just I thought it was interesting because um, Kat is a regular and she always comes at these things with the utmost respect. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I thought... I, I knew she didn't mean anything malicious by that, so... Oh, no, no. And, and I never take that question maliciously. I, I get it often. But it's it's an understandable question. I completely get that. And I can understand why some people would definitely be skeptical when it comes to mixing it with shamanism. Like, it not only is the one kind of the touchy subject because, you know, uh, particularly in Canada where I live, there's the whole reconciliation with the indigenous people going on. And so it's kind of a very touchy subject in that regard. And then demons are touchy all on their own. So mixing the two together and sometimes, ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. So I can see why people are a little bit leery. You know, it's... It's funny, um, I'm becoming more and more comfortable over the years with the whole idea of meeting something like that face-to-face, but, you know, I came from a heavy Judeo-Christian background myself, so when I first was into, you know, working with angels or working with demons, the whole idea was I wanted to keep everything external from myself, everything at arm's distance, everything within the triangle, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think people, even people who practice magic who are beyond their Judeo-Christian upbringings, they they think of this idea of not having that spirit constrained to a triangle and it freaks them out a little because it's like, okay, you guys are talking about the whole idea of being face-to-face in a trance environment. Uh, what could be described, I don't know. Tell me if this is fair, William. I, I think a journey experience tends to be like a lucid dream. 
Well, it can be that for a lot of people. Many people see it as you would almost a movie on a screen. And I think that's what most people want to expect. It's like the lucid daydream that you're watching and, if you're lucky, participating in with all your senses. Some people struggle and they'll just get uh, sensations or sounds. And that may be journeying for them. That's all they'll get. But you can work to develop any sense better in journey space. Now, I'm, I'm actually curious about, um, I wanted to talk about the drumming a little bit, because mm. um, I mean, because I think uh, that's, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I know I've used, like, ritual music and different um, repetition, rep- repetitious sounds to help get into certain states. Um, so, William, could you, like, maybe tell us a little bit about, about how the, how the drum, drumming works with regard to pulling someone into that particular state and how you stay focused to be able to keep that that drumming up while you're trying to go into that state. (laughs) Well, a lot of people, first of all, that are journeying at home and on their own will not drum themselves. They'll just rely on some sort of MP3 track or a drumming disc, that sort of thing. Or if they're going to a drumming circle, usually it'll be 15 people lying down and one or two people drumming their heads off for 30 minutes or however long they're going. And that can be a challenge. It can definitely be a challenge to be the person doing that for that time. But the way that drumming works is we're normally in our awake state with our brain waves working at alpha and when the drumming gets at a specific beat per minute, it's, it's usually when you're going at a, about the rhythm of a doom, 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 doom. And I'm not going to be able to tell you off the top of my head how many beats per minute that is. But when it gets to that slow rhythm, it's just a little bit, just uh, a little bit quicker than your heart. Um, it will drop you into the uh, theta rhythm of dreams, very much like a lucid dream or just in the state between dreaming and sleeping. And that is how we're able to journey. And that's why when we're in journey state, it will feel like sometimes we've been gone for hours and hours and hours, but we've only been journeying for 15 minutes, just like if we've taken that cat nap on the couch. Okay. Huh. I understand that. It's and like, we, we've talked about a little bit about, like, drums in the past. And if somebody, say, wanted to get into, like, you know, buying their own drums, if they didn't, you know, get a CD or an MP3 of a journeying drum track, for example. Sure. Um, what advice would you give them for that? Well, my advice to them would be to go to an actual musical store. Don't go and buy your drum at a pagan store because pagan stores won't keep them necessarily in the right environment. This isn't to diss my local pagan store, because they normally sell everything that you want, but um, sometimes the drums there will have been improperly stored, and they'll need to be tuned, and you won't necessarily know how to do that. So I'd go to a musical store and buy something called a bodrin. It's just a little hand drum. It'll have a stick in the back for you to hold it, and it will normally come with a tapper. And honestly, they're very expensive. So they can run you, where I live, between 80 to $100 and up. So it's often good to start with that drumming disc, if you're not sure. That or start with a kid's drum. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people will go to drumming circles, and they will start with something they made with Tupperware and rice in it as a rattle before they do the big investment. <laughs> it's just a way of trying things out before you buy that. 80 or $100, you know, uh, instrument, just like before a uh, pagan buys their 80 or $100 cloak or what have you. Right. Okay. Nice. Well, uh, well I was going to al- move. Oh, go ahead. I've always believed in uh, providing things for people that come to my drumming circles. Like, I, I was one of those pagans that was riding the bus, and it was hard to bring my stuff on my back from place to place and bringing these huge drums to drumming circles when you didn't have a car was always difficult. So I wanted to think about all those little broke pagans that were, you know, making their way on the buses and how did they have to 
you know, make do. So I've, I've often written how-tos on how to make your drums out of Tupperware or how to make your first rattle <laughs> out, of, out of a can to provide them with their, uh, you know, stopgap instruments until they want to invest for the first time around. Right. Well, that makes sense. And don't don't go big until you you know until you really kind of know what you're doing. And exactly. You have yeah. So I was gonna gonna go into um, uh, do magic, unless unless you have any other uh, topics of of interest that we might cover, Jason. Well, how do I put this? I, I guess. Before we get into the do magic, let's let's talk about. Okay, how did it make you feel when? Okay, in your Norse practices, you were journeying to go talk to spirits, and and you, you know, you were going where you wanted to go. You were contacted who you wanted to contact. Generally, you know, that day, was the case. <laughs> generally, generally, I, I think that's how a lot of people start out. Um, but then one day here comes Lucifer and he's like, Hey kid, come here. I want to talk to you. And he's not even being forthright at first about who he is. How, how did that make you feel? Did that feel like a loss of control on your end? Absolutely. But that was pretty much what the lesson was about. It wasn't just about the research and having to dig through this, that, this and that clue to figure out who he was. Though I did feel like one of the members of the Scooby-Doo gang for a little bit. It also had to do with surrender in a lot of ways. Because up until then, it had been about bringing the spirits to me when I wanted them. And though even Odin had showed up when I hadn't really been asking for it, I'd still said no to him over and over and over to him. And sometimes when you want to be a shamanic practitioner and you really want to heal other people, it isn't about you. And Lucifer was teaching me it wasn't about me. Hmm. So you also, didn't feel like tricked or slighted? No, I didn't way. feel I didn't feel tricked or slighted I mean, I guess in that's any true. way. Right, no. well, when... When Lucifer showed up and kind of lied to you about who he was, oh, well, he most, never lied. some people would feel like, oh, well, that's kind of an underhanded thing. Sounds like something a demon would do, uh, you know, not being honest, you know. No, it was never a lie. It was more like a riddle. He would give me another clue, and I could look up this, and I could look up that, and I could look up that. It was more like Rumpelstiltskin. Are you this person? Are you that person? And finally, he told me who he was until so I figured it out. He never told you he was something or someone that he wasn't. He just popped you clues and said, go check this out. Exactly. He made me work for it real hard. That sounds like Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> so, something else I want to broach just briefly before, before Stephanie gets into the do magic stuff. So, I read in your material that you did a series of workings with 72 Goetia spirits straight through. Yes. I, you got to tell us about that, man, because I know I know there's going to be ceremonial magicians. The moment I said that, 72 Goetic spirits in a row, there's going to be ceremonial magicians that just poop themselves a little. They're listening <laughs> right now. <laughs> I admit it felt like running the gauntlet. And after I was about, even six months into it, I thought, why did I do this? I'm crazy, man. Like, why? Um, but it, what kept me going was the knowledge that when I finished it, it would be like uh, having completed, I don't know, my master's. I don't know. It felt like my demonic master's. And I kept saying, if I do it, if I do it, it, it will be something so many people won't have done. If they ask me, have you worked with so-and-so, I'll be able to say yes. I'll be able to connect with so many more people than I could before. And because I'm studying, um, I'm studying to be a demonic priest, that's important to me. That, that was really the main goal. I would be able to answer yes when people asked me, uh, have you dealt with so-and-so? 
do you have any experience? What would you advise? And my advice is always get to know them personally, but sometimes they want to know your experiences and you can't answer if you don't have them. Mm. Okay. So tell us the scariest thing that came out of those workings and the most beneficial thing that came out of those workings. The scariest thing that came out of those workings was my patron. <laughs> was my uh, was my patron Amducius. Um, when when I realized it, it was him and he was, so to speak, standing there, looming. The, the energy was looming there, and the realization it was him um, that it, you know that this energy had come back to call. Um, that was the moment that was really scary. Uh, just because it was the, the thing that you can't really run from. I hadn't wanted to really commit to a patron. Uh, like I said, I'd said no to Odin many times. No, no, no. Thank you, thank you. No. Um, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. I don't want to. And I said that to uh, Amducius too. And so that was it. Commitment was frightening. Beyond that, demons like Boon were really heavy. The death demons were heavy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the big four, the four Goetic Kings. Um, I was quite, quite frightened of them in the way that some people are afraid of working with demons. I think even demonologers get worried about working with some big heavies. Well, that's true. And, Definitely and, and true. The, and the most beneficial. Oh, the most beneficial? I have to say that that would have to be Astaroth and Belial. Um, okay. They both became two of my absolute favorites, and um, I worked with Astaroth very much in a comparative mythology kind of way, um, making connections to Astarte and Inanna. Um, I did uh, rituals here in the city uh, with a, a Descent of Inanna theme, and then uh, with Belial, he just became so much to me. He's a huge pillar of my practice now. Uh, I do a ritual for him for Christmas every year that my entire family participates in. Awesome. Excellent. <clears throat> so, and that was that was two years. That that entire process was two years going through those demons. Yes. <clears throat> and now that it's over, it feels it feels kind of strange not to be doing that every day. I kind of go, well, what do I do now? What set shall I work through now? And I don't want to collect them all like Pokemon. I'm definitely not interested in that. <laughs> you know, uh, Andrea's got a cool, a cool shirt. <clears throat> don't know where he got it, but I love it. It's got all 72 seals, and it says, Gotta Catch Them All. Exactly. I love that shirt. <laughs> I actually have that shirt myself. Nice. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, I don't want to make it that way, but I, I well, do keep, want to make something new next, something, some challenge next. Well, then I guess that challenge is, well, aside from, aside from your uh, seminary studies <clears throat> for the priesthood, um, I suppose that, that your work continues on a daily basis with, um, with now you're doing magic challenges. Mm-hmm. And yes. what's interesting is you actually did that 72, uh, working with the 72 spirits of the Goetia, you actually did that while also doing some do magic challenges, didn't you? And uh, in part <laughs> when you were working through the Nectemeron gates. He's, uh, uh, Will's always got all, all this stuff going on. I was a sweet man. I wasn't a Nectemeron Gates guy, but I was doing the uh, the Goetia work at the same time, and it was a real challenge to fit the last Do Magic uh, project into my Goetia work. It was like, okay, which which of these demons can I fit into my overall goals? And that was the one that was the hardest. It felt like connecting the dots on a picture where 25 of the numbers were missing. Hmm. Huh. So it well, was that's interesting. We were supposed to do an enchantment challenge, and it had to be to bring something into our lives that we really wanted. So I didn't want to just uh, work with the demons I had left in the Goetia and and try to force them 
to bring something into my life, not force them, but to force this relationship with them, I wanted to really bring something I needed into my life. So I had to put a lot of creative thinking into application. Right. It took it took a little more little more work than you thought it might have. Then it did. It, I swear, you know, we have that month before to do research, and I didn't really have to do a lot of research. I knew the demons of the Goetia fairly well. I knew what things they were good at, their provinces. But what I had to do was plan on paper, and I swear I went through half a notebook doing. Okay, I will work with this one for this and this one for that. And I thought near the end of it, I wouldn't have it done in time. I wouldn't have just the planning done, but at the very last minute, it all came together, and I thought, okay, these are the eight that I will work with over this month, because I fit in eight over that period of time, um, to help me get back to school. And in the end, I it, it didn't come together. It was one of those do magic projects where I don't feel that I was as successful as I could have been. The enchantment didn't bring everything I wanted into my life. And yet it was successful because I still did magic every day and I learned from my failures. But, Good point. But then you, all, you have a daily practice, right? Absolutely, right. And so uh -huh. enchantment wasn't something that I necessarily did every day. So I had to fine-tune it as I was going along. And that's the point, I really think, of this do magic thing. It's not whether or not you get what you're aiming for a hundred percent every time or you have a, you know a perfect score it's that you're learning and growing as a magician every month and that you have that daily practice that you're building upon at least that's what I see it as the point that's what I see the point as right okay maybe I'm completely so, wrong <laughs> no no um, so I guess my question is, um, so would you, would you recommend the challenge to other people? I completely would recommend it to anyone who wants to establish that daily practice and they just need a little kick in the butt. Before I heard about this challenge, I used to recommend doing some sort of magical prompts, like to go on to Tumblr and find something like the... 30 days of whatever questions and it would ask you 30 things about your um, pagan practice or it would ask you this that and the other thing and just get people to, to journal even for 30 days just to get them thinking about things regularly because I think that armchair magicians they're not really benefiting themselves at all if all they're doing is reading um, and that would be one step journaling but this is even better this is a, a new prompt every couple of months to get you thinking and doing something different. Right. Well, you know, you also bring up another point, and I actually saw um, this brought up in one of the demonolatry groups recently, um, is people saying, you know, uh, I don't if I don't have a reason to work with a demon, um, why would I like create a reason or why would I contact them anyway? And this kind of like, I don't know, kind of ties it all together because like when you're doing say something like the do magic challenge or for example, the Goetia immersion, um, sometimes you are, okay. So obviously with the do magic challenge, you've got like a reason, but for something like the Goetia immersion, you may not have a reason except to kind of feel those demons out and see if, see, you know, what you can learn from them and what you can kind of like feel them out, basically. Um, you know what I'm saying? Seeing if your personalities and your energy meshes and that sort of thing. Um, so, what would you say to somebody like that who says, well, I'm not going to work with a demon unless I have a damn good reason? Um, I would say that they're missing out on a great opportunity to get to know someone. That would say that would be like saying, I am never going to go out with someone unless I'm going to marry them. What happens to just getting to know people? We have to get to know energies until we do, you know, to build up to doing heavy work as well. And I think it really behooves us to build up these relationships little by little with 
demons before we come to them for something instead of using them kind of like vending machines and just showing up when we need something yes absolutely so that applies to any kind of spirit work i would say building that relationship and not just using it like a uh vending machine of i'm rubbing the genie bottle because i need a wish (laughs) exactly so we have an interesting question in the chat room from another regular path of the fool um so this person had an experience where they met a demon who told them they were from the fiery pits of hell and they're asking is there such a place or was this entity lying to me Well, my opinion when it comes to places of torment is that psychologically there's probably a reason why you would want to metaphorically visit that place. It comes down to what I call, and please forgive me for being a complete and utter geek, but it comes down to what I consider the Silent Hill Principle. There's this video game called Silent Hill where when certain people die they go to their own personal hell. And I think a lot of I think a lot of people make their journeys that way, that over and over and over again they take it to a really dark place because they're not really ready to do anything but navel gaze and go anywhere else. I think it's right. a time that it could be discernment. Are you sure you're really hearing anything at all? And only time will tell when you go on more than one journey. Well, I think I think also people bring their own. Um they bring their own viewpoints and psychology into into their practice with them. So if you really believe in the hell mythology, for example, I think you're more apt to run across demons who claim to be from there. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, and this is what I believe, a lot of that has to do with, with uh, demons will sometimes appear to you in a way that is most comfortable for you, the way that you tend to view them. And if that is your view, or if if you're afraid of something, then they're going to give you something to be afraid of. So it's part of your psyche that kind of induces that experience. On the other hand, um, I also believe that some people don't have discernment, and so they think they're running into a demon, but what they're actually running into is one of those, what I call others, or some people call them trickster spirits, that claim to be something that they're actually, that they're not. And I've run into those types of spirits before, back when I was young and inexperienced. So it is very possible, depending on the experience of the magician and how well their, or how uh, strong their discernment skills are, um, I think it could be you could very easily be tricked by a spirit into, you know, feeding into your own mythology. Because what you bring to magic, you can either take it to a dark place or a light place or a place in between, and that's entirely up to the practitioner. I think to a certain degree, too, you have to check your own experiences before going into journey space or into magical space as well. If you're suddenly seeing demons or any spirit that has black eyes and red wings, you should maybe look at whether or not you've watched a movie with a demon with black eyes and red wings recently. Like, you should always have that kind of level of discernment running as well. Check your own experiences. Is it very close to something you just watched or read in a book? Is that why it's presenting this way? And is it because you're comfortable or is it your own mind chatter? Not even a negative spirit, but just mind chatter of your own that you're hearing and you're not really going anywhere. That sometimes is something that people have to learn to discern as well. Agreed. Okay. Well, in closing, because we're, we're going to have to wrap up here in a couple in, in a matter of seconds, actually. Um Somebody else asked, why aren't there that many demonology or grimoires? And I would say to you, go to the website, check out William's book. I've linked to it on the website, ddtrh.com. Also, look up S. Conley, Stephanie's works. She has lots of great works in demonology. And with that, I bid everybody a great week. I'm going to let the Illuminus take us on out. And 
we will see you next week. <laughs>